Today we'll actually just have a bit of a lesson in history, picking up from the message that Pastor Manu brought to us last week. And if you can just remind us, uh, Pastor Manu told us that God had set up things for a son to be born of a virgin as a sign to King Ahaz and the people of Judah of his re uh, redemption plan for their tribulations. And so that promise stands true for us today. Uh, and God is reminding us that he is the God of the impossible and he is ready and willing to move mountains and to do things and turn things around for our sake and um, for the sake of humanity. Our guests, those who are visiting us today, we are happy that you are with us. We are going through a sermon series called Hope Merchant, uh, just going back in time to look at the story of the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we are walking through the book of Isaiah Isaiah is uh, sometimes referred to as the Jesus, uh, sort of the Jesus prophet. Uh, he talks about Jesus uh, so much, uh, apart from the other four Gospels. And he's talking uh, about Jesus from a futuristic point of view, while the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are talking about the events that were happening right in their lifetime. Isaiah is projecting what was coming in the future. And so from the message that Pastor Manu brought us last week about the prophecy of a son being born, if we go back about 200 years before Isaiah spoke, uh, just after the death of King Solomon, the United Kingdom of Israel had been split apart, had been fractured into the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom took the name Israel and um, they had their sort of their main city as Samaria. And the southern kingdom, which is Judah, uh, uh, was, uh, had their sort of uh, capital in the uh, holy city of Jerusalem. They maintained the initial or the original capital, which was Jerusalem, as the northern went into Samaria. Now, there were constant frictions, constant fights, uh, internal aggression between these two, uh, these two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. And sometimes they were being attacked from the neighboring or the surrounding kingdoms. The Assyrians, the Syria, and the Arameans were constantly attacking them, especially the kingdom of Judah. And this is where the lineage of David continued to rule while the rest of the Israelites, um, about 10 tribes, moved on to the northern kingdom. And so after Isaiah's prophecy uh, um, in uh, the kingdom of Judah, things started looking up for the children of, the, of Israel, the, of the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, I mean, the, the Jews, the house of David. Things started looking good for them. In fact, at that point when uh, Isaiah spoke, the northern kingdom had ganged up with the kingdom of Syria to attack Judah. And we see that a few chapters, uh, a, 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 some time after the prophecy, actually in the reign of the next king after Ahaz, this was King Hezekiah, who was a son of Ahaz, the northern kingdom was decimated. They were attacked by the Assyrians 
who came into the aid of Judah and they attacked the northern kingdom and they were reunited together and they, were con they continued to be governed from Jerusalem as one united kingdom. And so things were looking up for them. There was no longer the northern and the southern kingdom. They were reunited and so they felt like the prophecy that God was giving them through the prophet Isaiah was actually coming to fruition. It didn't seem that it will take long. But shortly, a few kings after Hezekiah, things started to go terribly wrong for the Jews, or for the Israelites for that matter. The Assyrians, who were their allies, who had ganged up with them to decimate the northern kingdom, they were overrun by the Babylonians. They were taken over, and now the Assyrians were not there anymore, and so the kingdom of Babylon take, took over. And the Babylonians were not necessarily friendly to the Israelites. And so because of that, the Israelites were taken captive into Babylon. And when you continue to read the Bible, this is where we hear the story of um, Nehemiah who took the Israelites back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So it's these things, these events are happening right after the prophecy, a couple of years down the line. Yeah, and so the by the time uh, the captivity is ending, the Babylonians have come, run over the Assyrians, taken the Israelites into captivity. Some time later, they. Uh, free them and they are free to go back to their city, to go back to rebuild their nation. By the time this is happening, something else was going on behind the scenes. And this was the expansion of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was quickly gaining ground in Northern Africa, in Egypt, in Asia Minor, in the region of east of, or is it west, east of the Mediterranean the region around Syria, Damascus, all that area, the Romans were taking ground very quickly in the Middle East. And so Judah and Israel and the area that was later called as Judea fell into the hands of the Roman Empire. And how the Romans governed uh, the territories that they conquered they either had them as provinces of the Roman Empire or as sort of semi-independent kingdoms. And so Judea was one of those semi-independent kingdoms which are referred to as client kingdoms. It means you have a king who is a sort of semi-independent. They are not fully independent, but they still rely on the main city. It's like the relationship between Zanzibar and Tanzania. You have Zanzibar as a sort of a self-governing, but it's not really free, so you still depend on mainland. So that was the scenario at that time. And so at the time that this prophecy is being fulfilled, uh, the birth of Christ, the region of Judea, which was inhabited by the Israelites, is a client kingdom with a semi-independent king who we come to know today as Herod the Great. Now, between the prophecy and the delivery of it, there was a gap of around 400 years. 
The prophet Isaiah came and delivered a promise to the children of Israel, a promise from God, a prophecy that a child will be born who will deliver them from their uh, uh, afflictions, from their struggles. But this prophecy was not fulfilled the following day. There is a gap of 400 years. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced silent treatment. People who are married here, especially the men, I don't know if you've ever experienced silent treatment. <laughs> it's said that for every two words a man speaks, a woman speaks ten. A friend of mine told me, for every three words he says, his wife speaks a hundred. Now you can imagine when you are given silent treatment, uh, you are used to a hundred words for your three, now you can't even get one. It can be a very difficult situation. You feel like you are walking on eggshells and any wrong move could trigger an eruption. Yeah. Now you can imagine getting uh, silent treatment from the Lord himself. And so a prophecy was delivered to the children of Israel that a son would come to deliver them from their afflictions, from their troubles. And then God went silent on them for 400 years. 400 years is really a long time. I can imagine that there are generations that passed without experiencing God's miracles. And all, only the, the only thing they had was through like rumors that there was once a God who used to perform miracles, who used to do great signs and wonders for their children. I would imagine if in Judah those days there were tabloids and gutter press, they will just be getting those, uh, you know those, uh, I don't know if they happen these days. There are times when you would board a matatu and they will give you some small strips of paper with what is contained, they, they, like they are marketing their newspaper and they have like very catchy messages to make you buy and then when you buy, you look for that story and you can't find it. That's the only way they were experiencing God's uh, God's miracles through uh, through uh, rumors. If there was a newspaper called Judea Chronicles, Miracles of God was the headline. Number five will shock you. That's the only way they experience God's miracles. Yeah? And remember, they had just been from captivity, and their rulers weren't the best either. Let's look at uh, uh, Herod the Great, who was the ruler at, during that time. Herod was nothing short of a dictator. He did some amazing stuff, but his rulership was brutal. Historians and biblical scholars have given us a glimpse of his personal and professional life. They've just given us a glimpse of who he was. And today I'm happy that there's a friend of mine who is visiting with us, who is a historian, and so if I take corners, he's going to uh, uh, take me back to the point. Karibu, uh, 
Dr. Jethro Nayumba and his wife Jacqueline Ayumba, who are my really good friends, karibu uh, to our service today. And so historians paint a picture of a very cruent tyrant and even a maniac who had a personality disorder. And stories are told of how at different times he thought that his own family was out to overthrow him. And as a result, he ordered the execution of not one, but three of his sons, his wife, and his mother-in-law. You see, Herod's meteoric rise to the helm of the Jewish, uh, to the Jewish uh, state was at best fraudulent. Herod was a son of a guy called Antipa. And Antipa was sort of a chief minister in Judea. And he became a chief minister because of his closeness to Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was one of those of the Roman generals who was very key in uh, who was very key for the expansion of uh, the Roman uh, rulership in the area around Judea, Samaria, and Jerusalem. And because of that, he was sort of gifted a political administrative appointment, and he was made the chief minister. And Antipa made friendship beyond Julius Caesar into the next and the first uh, Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. And so because of that, his family benefited from political appointments. And his son, Herod, was appointed as a Roman governor, as a provincial governor in the area, um, in the region of uh, Samaria. And Herod's older brother, his name was Phazael, was appointed as a provincial governor in uh, Jerusalem. And Herod was a very crafty person. He was very crafty, he was very smart, he was a business person, he forged relationships with Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar, and Julius Caesar's nephew, who became the first governor, the first emperor, the, the first Roman emperor, and his name was Caesar Augustus. And Herod was also a business partner to somebody called Cleopatra, and Cleopatra was the queen of Egypt. And they were business partners doing business together. And Cleopatra was a concubine of Julius Caesar. You can imagine how people's household affairs can affect a whole nation. Yeah. And so there was entanglement, entanglement, and they were profiting from that entanglement. And so the concept of um, uh, dynasties did not start today. It was there even in the time of Julius Caesar and uh, uh, Herod the Great. And so at some point, uh, at that point when his dad was the, was the chief minister, the king of Judea at that point was a guy called Hucanos II. And Hucanos II was overthrown from the throne by his nephew called Antigonus. Herod, remember, was a provincial governor. He decided to quickly assemble a delegation to go to Rome in the name of going to campaign for Hucanos to be reinstalled as king. But he had other motives. 
when he came back from Rome, he came back having been appointed as king himself and installed by the Roman Senate. And it wasn't Hucanos anymore. Now it was Herod the Great. He came back and he became king. And this was the person under whom the first century Jews, the children of Israel, this is the person who they were put under. One historian said that Herod attained his kingdom as a, force, uh, as a fox, ruled as a tiger, and died as a dog. And so from Herod's militant arm, Caesar's heavy taxes levied on the people of God, and God's silence for 400 years, the Jews were really worn out. They were physically, emotionally, financially, and spiritually drained. Let me put it this way. The China-type loans did not start with us today. Before the Chinese, there were Romans. Because Herod's reign was marked by massive infrastructure developments. The expansion of the second temple in Jerusalem he constructed a new water pipeline. He constructed a new port in the town called Caesarea Maritima. He built the Temple Mount. He built the Herodium, sort of a sanctuary on top of a hill. This was a nation that had just come out from captivity to a desolate city. Where were they getting the funds to finance this project? if not expensive loans from Rome that led to their heavy taxation to repay those loans. Those 400 difficult, chaotic, torturous years must have felt like eternity to them. But there is a glimmer of hope. And that's where we want to read God's word today. And our word comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, from verse 6 to 7. Isaiah, chapter 9, from verse 6 to verse 7. And I'll be reading from the New International Version. Sorry, uh, yeah, Isaiah, chapter 9, from verse 6 to verse 7. And this is what God's word says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I will read again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, 
there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I can imagine what it was like being a Jew that time, living in the occupied territory of Judea with the heavy taxes and with the heavy hand of Herod the Great. I don't know why he's called the Great, but Herod the Great as he is referred to us. Perhaps some of the Jews knew and remembered this promise that had been given by God through the prophet Isaiah. Maybe some of them had been taught by their dads and moms about the prophets and the promises those prophets had made. Maybe they read about it in the recorded histories of their ancestry and of their nation and of their land. But what did they do in their most difficult times? That's a question we answer. When they were overwhelmed by the oppression they were living under and their utter subjugation as a people. What did they do to make it through those difficult days? Maybe they kept reminding themselves of the promise. Maybe some of them had even a way of reciting it. Maybe they will be walking around when things are so difficult and they will mutter under their breath, a child is coming, a child is coming. In the estate where I live, there's a primary school inside. And just next to our apartment block, the block that is very closest to us is a kindergarten block. And every morning as the children are in school, I always hear them go through the alphabet and the vowels, ma, me, me, mom, every single morning, and capital A, small a. So I would imagine they do that to remind themselves of what they've been learning and to not to forget and to keep going and to add new knowledge every day. Maybe this was the same ritual, the same routine for the children of Israel. A child is coming, a child is coming. Maybe they would hear it from the temple being announced. Maybe in the synagogues before the teaching of the day started, they will be reminded that a child is coming. Whatever you're going through is passing cloud. A child is coming to redeem us. Imagine they will consider their shame and their terrible situation and they will remind themselves every single day that there is a day that will come and our tribulations will be gone and we will be free like Kenya we experience celebrating our freedom today. A child is coming. A child is coming. For 400 years, the Jews had remembered that promise, that a child will come and set them free. They recited the promise. They had clung onto the promise, but all they got was more silence from God. They had cried to him. They had prayed and fasted. They had waited on him, but all they got was silence for 400 years. Some had died waiting for this promise. Some had been born. They didn't know about the promise, but they were told about it, that what we are going through will not last forever. 
But I can imagine. Silence can bring a sense of abandonment. Some of them may, might have felt that the Lord had failed to keep their promise. Maybe they even wondered, did God have any power? Was he even willing to fulfill that promise he had given them? Maybe they felt that God was unwilling or unable to keep the promise he had made to them. Maybe some had uh, concluded that God wasn't interested in their affairs and in their suffering anymore. Maybe some had even walked out of faith and no longer believed in God because he had abandoned them for 400 years. Your own children, your own inheritance, called by your name, anointed by you, but carried uh, into captivity, come back into a desolate city, gone and experiencing heavy taxes. They have even auctioned their land to be able to pay the taxes and the loans that they had gotten from the Romans. It could be as you are listening to this, you are in a similar situation. It could be that at some point you had faith, a great faith in God. It could be that you believed he loved you and that he always would take care of you. But now you are not sure anymore. He seems to have been quiet for an eternity when you needed him the most. You see, the children of Israel demanded or needed a redemption immediately. At the point when the promise was being given to them, they faced an imminent attack from the northern kingdom together with the Arameans and the Syrians. They were going to attack, yet the prophet came and told them that a son will be born of a virgin. We don't need a son. These people are attacking tonight. They'll attack tomorrow. We will not be there to see a son tomorrow. We want it today. In this COVID season, we have seen situations where you are desperate. Your mother needs an ICU bed today, not tomorrow. Not for a son to be born. You need an ICU bed. And people were dying in corridors of both public and private hospitals waiting for an ICU bed. They were not interested in a son who is coming. They want redemption today, not tomorrow. And sometimes you will hear the government say, we have laid a foundation for a new level 5 hospital in so and so sub-county. That's not going to help you. I need an ICU bed today. I need it now, not a foundation for a hospital. And this is the same situation these guys were in. The Arameans are attacking tonight. And you're telling us about a son who will be born. We don't know when. We don't know where. When you are losing your job, you want God to show up today. When a family member is dying, you need God to show up today. When your house is being auctioned, 
You need God to show up today. You don't want stories of a son. How will the son help me? This week, there was a trending topic on Twitter. And somebody had asked for people to share their most defining moments of 2021. And there were stories, both good and bad. And people talked about how their 2021 was. And one guy wrote, this was the most difficult year of my life. I lost my mother, I lost my sister, I lost two nephews, children of my sister, I lost two aunties, I lost three cousins, children of my two aunties, I lost a friend and his mom all in one day. Now I am alone, this was all I had for family. This person needed God to show up today at that point, not to be told about a son who is coming. And this is the point where the children of Israel were. They were facing an imminent attack. They were going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And the prophet came and told them, a son is coming. However sweet it sounded, they needed God to show up immediately without delay. But God was silent and quiet for them for 400 years, and not just quiet. They were going through difficult moments of being thrown into captivity, of being used as slaves, subjected to hard labor. And even when they were freed to go back to their nation and rebuild their nations, they were not really free. They were under the, uh, the hard clenched fist of the Romans. And even their own king, who they had in Herod the Great, things were difficult for them. He wasn't that easy of a person to deal with. And any sign of opposition will earn you a spot with the execution squad, including his own family. He had a lot of paranoia around him. Remember, Herod was not even a legitimate king. He wasn't born in a lineage of uh, kings. He wasn't a part of the royal family. He corrupted his way to becoming king. And when he came back and he realized that he wasn't in the family to legitimize his kingship, to legitimize his rulership, he ended up marrying the granddaughter of the king who had been deposed. He married the, daughter, the granddaughter of Hucanos II and made his wife's mother, the king's daughter, he made her the chief of staff of his household. But he was always looking at his back at what is going on. And at the slightest provocation, he ordered their execution, including his three own sons. That's the kind of person you can imagine how many of the Jews had found themselves in the torture chambers how many of them had been executed before he executed his own family, his own blood? For some of us, you feel as though you are under siege and God has been silent for what feels like 400 years. 
you are in, you are in utter agony clinging on to the promises of scripture and we have those scriptures we keep saying by his stripes we are healed i can do all things through christ who strengthens me i am the head and not the tail yet god is still silent for what seems like 400 years generations before us in the children of Ju uh, of israel in judea clung on to the same promises some of them never got to see those promises come true in those 400 years many must have died without seeing god coming through for them So let's look at the words of Isaiah again. Maybe we can draw some lessons. Maybe there are things we can cling on. And I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Maybe we will see something different this time round. And it says, "For us, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor." mighty god everlasting father prince of peace his government and its peace will never end he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor david for all eternity the passionate commitment of the lord of heavens amis will make this happen let's draw some lessons from this passage of scripture and the first god gave a promise that should have given his children israel some hope it should have made them recognize that he was coming through for them ultimately he was god the hope merchant and as the children of judea were going through muttering under their breath a child is coming a child is coming they were clinging on to this hope that was given to them by god the hope merchant but the second thing i see is that god promised the children of israel that a child will be born among them who would become king he committed to give them a child of promise who will come and accomplish some significant things an heir of david who would usher in the everlasting you can actually tell the children the jews were desperately looking for this deliverer and in the book of john the gospel of john we see when john the baptist was going around preaching the message of the coming of the messiah and baptizing them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit they actually went to John the Baptist and they were asking, "Hey John the Baptist, who are you? Are you the Messiah?" And he was like, "No, I am not." They were really looking for this Messiah. They were ready for him to deliver them. And so the second thing I see is a child of promise, and Jesus Christ was a child of promise. But the third thing I see here is the fulfillment of the promise that God had given them through the prophet Isaiah even though it came late 400 years later that fulfillment exceeded the expectation of the children of Israel the Jews waited patiently for a very long time 400 years for that promise to be fulfilled 
but they were hoping for a political ruler. They were hoping for somebody who would come and topple over Herod. Somebody who will do exact same thing that he did. He went and made his way through deals and he came back having anointed, being appointed and installed as king. They were hoping that there will be a ruler who will come and change the world order, the political order. They were waiting for a political warrior from the house of David. They were waiting for a son who was far less from what God did. But you know what? God did not send them a ruler. God did not send them a king. God did not send them a military ruler. God came himself. So the fulfillment of this promise far exceeded the expectation of a political ruler because God came in person, he himself. This fulfillment exceeded their expectation. This is perhaps the greatest miracle mankind has ever witnessed and probably one that has ever and will ever been, uh, be witnessed. God chooses to become man to save man, to come himself in person. Maybe let's dwell here a little bit. To fulfill the promise that was given in the book of Isaiah from Isaiah 7 that Pastor Manu read to us last week, through to this promise, an expansion and explanation of that promise in chapter 9, to fulfill it, God, the one who designed the human body, now had to live in it himself. The one who could previously be everywhere he wanted to be at any point, at the speed of his thoughts, he had to learn to use the legs that he created himself. Imagine God designed the human body. He designed the bladder, the bowels, and the movements that come with it. But Jesus, as a little child, had to be potty trained by his mother Mary. Can you imagine? Think of the changes that he had to go through to live through the experience that he created himself. The one who created and formed trees, he designed them. He had to learn carpentry and use the wood that he created to make things. What a sacrifice that God made to come himself in person to us. God made man to save man. But the fourth and the most important thing we are seeing here is that God did it for us. He did it for you. He did it for me. He goes through this transformation not to cause any need, not because of any reason, but on his part, he did it for you and for me. He lived our experience so that he can deliver us, he can give us redemption. And maybe as you listen to this, you are out of hope. It's been too long. God hasn't shown up. I lost my property. I lost my job. I lost my loved ones like this guy who shared his own lived experience, not imagine his own experience. Maybe you are feeling like the first century Jews were feeling those days. 
God is taking too long to come through for me and things keep getting worse and worse. We may be disappointed at his delay in coming and in showing up for us. We lost our job while we waited. We lost our parents while we waited. My marriage crumbled while I waited. Where was God? We don't know why Jesus came at the time that he did. We don't know why he delayed. We don't know why he took 400 years for this prophecy to be fulfilled. But the Bible tells us that the, the timing was perfect. In the book of Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 and 5, the Bible tells us, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. We for sure don't have the answers to the whys. Why did it take time? Why did it take 400 years? Why did the Jews uh, go into captivity yet they had a promise? Why wouldn't God hasten that promise and send the promised son when they were at the time when they needed him the most. We don't know that for sure. We can't answer the why. But the Bible tells us that the timing was perfect. During those 400 years of silence, he was still working behind the scenes. During those 400 years, the Assyrians, the, Persians, the Persian Empire fell and the Greeks were raised. Alexander the Great of Greece gave the Mediterranean world a new language. That entire region who was speaking different tribes and different ethnic groups who had been thrown so that they cannot understand each other and every one of them was speaking their own language. They were reunited into the same language thanks to the coming of the Greeks. And this language the Greek language facilitated the writing of the gospel. It facilitated the writing of the gospel. The early manuscripts of the Bible are found in the language of Greek. And it meant that everybody who lived at that point, because they were united by the same language, were able to understand each other and understand the language of the Bible. The Greeks, through the Alexander the Great, provided roads. They instituted the Greek culture all over the Mediterranean. And then after them, the Romans came. Even though the Romans conquered the region, but they provided a new way of life. They provided a system of transportation. They provided and installed the central governance system that we know today. They brought together a court system, the judicial system that even our own judicial system borrows from, that old Roman way of doing things. They were all established in the conquered region and it facilitated the movement of goods and services. It facilitated the movement of the gospel. It facilitated the ministry of Jesus Christ. In those 400 years of silence, and seeming absence from God, all this work happened. And today, even us can read that word of God. Even us can cling on that promise that was given to the Jews 400 years before it was fulfilled.
And after that, God deemed that the fullness of time had come for him to send his son. All the different elements had to be in place before the son came for a bigger and greater impact. The story of Christ is a story of redemption. For all the times you have felt as if God is quiet or has abandoned you, where you have read his promises and compared them with your reality, but you can't see any connection. For all the times you have waited on the promise and you are on the verge of giving up, we remember that God's silence that not, does not mean that he is inactive. And that in the fullness of time, God causes all things to align for his purpose. And that redemption does not always come in the form and the shape that we want it to be. And this is the circumstance of the children of Israel. And what does this mean for them? It meant that redemption had come, freedom had come, and hope had come. And as we close this message today, I want us to remember two things. Number one, renew your hope. Cling on to that promise. It may look like 400 years Renew your hope. God is inviting you to renew your hope, to put your hope and faith in him, to pray to him, and to be thankful for the times that he, had show, he has shown up for you. The second thing is be a hope merchant. As God invites us to a place of hoping and trusting in him, He's also inviting us to a place of spreading hope. He's inviting us to partner with him to touch humanity. He's inviting you and me to be a merchant of hope this Christmas season, to be someone who spreads hope this Christmas season, to reach out to someone and meet their felt needs, even as you give them a message of hope, to give them and to touch them. To be the son who came after 400 years. To pay their small bill that they are waiting and praying for God to pay. To give them a care package that they don't have anyone to give it to them. To host a Christmas party for those who don't have anyone to host it for them. Renew your hope and be a hope merchant.